Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Today, I'm talking to Professor Anthony Hatch from Wesleyan University in Connecticut about sugar as a global commodity that is not just dangerous to our health, but continues to carry a legacy of racism. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure to be with you. Can you start us out today by talking a little bit about yourself and your work and what you're working on now? Sure. Well, my name is Professor Tony Hatch, and I am an associate professor and chair of the Science and Society program at Wesleyan University in lovely Middletown, Connecticut, um, where I'm an affiliate faculty affiliate in several departments, the Department of Sociology, um, African-American Studies, and Environmental Studies. And my work um, is far-reaching and covers several different areas. I've, um, I have a, uh, an interest in metabolic health and racial inequality. In 2016, I published a book titled Blood Sugar um, that examined metabolic syndrome and race in the United States. And a couple of years later, published a second book on a completely unrelated topic um, uh, called Silent Cells, The Secret Drugging of Captive America, which examines the use of psychotropic drugs in captive populations in, in the United States. So my work is in sociology and science studies and kind of politics of knowledge. And um, I teach courses here in health and science and all sorts of stuff. So today we're going to be zoning in on your work on sugar from your book, Blood Sugar, but also how that work has evolved since. And I was wondering if you could just start us out by talking a little bit about what got you interested in sugar to begin with. Sure. I, you know, um, my relationship to sugar goes, like many of us, goes back to my childhood, actually. And, you know, uh, being a kid who could, you know, never kind of, how could I, how should I say, uh, never had my fill of sugar and um, could always go for more sweets. And in the, in the irony of all ironies, I was diagnosed as a type one diabetic at 16. And so became an insulin dependent diabetic at that age. And so from then forward, you know, I always had this kind of scientized and numeric relationship to sugar um, where, you know, the, the type one diabetic is, is, has no choice, but to, to closely monitor their sugar consumption, um, and not just sugar, i.e., you know, sweeteners, but sugars of all kinds, any carbohydrate, um, which is essential to how we manage our our, our illness. So, um, I always had that kind of in the background, and in my um, doctoral work in sociology, I was interested in health disparities more generally, and in how. Um, social inequality, and in particular racism, impacted the health of Black people. And I was, I was interested in, in a whole host of chronic illnesses, heart disease, diabetes, uh, obesity, and in, 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 in their intersection, which is what brought me to uh, studying what's called metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome is a biomedical category that encompasses the major risk factors for heart disease and stroke. And, um, you know, sugar consumption is directly related to this metabolic syndrome phenomena. And so in my dissertation and then in my first book, I just became very fixated on the relationship between sugar 
and black people. Um, and you know, the, the ways in which the kind of food system that, that was creating all of this metabolic disease um, really had ties to our colonial history um, and sugar's, you know, centrality to colonial rule, um, both as, a, as something that Black people produced in, in the colonies and then as something that Black people are now stuffed full with, you know, today. Uh, as I point out in my book, Blood Sugar, you know, it was, it was just shocking to me as one, one just social fact that, you know, African-American, people of African descent in the Caribbean, in the sugar colonies throughout the Caribbean, in the Americas, you know, um, for so much of that colonial history um, were the central producers of sugarcane, right? They were the ones growing it. They were the ones harvesting it. And then now African-American, African-Americans, speci specifically Black people in the United States, you know, consume more added sugar than any other group, right? Um, whereas at the end of the Civil War, um, very few black folks were getting access to sugar, right? So it's just been just done a massive reversal in a biohistory that um, that is no accident. And so you know that's that is that is what racism is in this context. It's a kind of metabolic racism. So um, I I I spent a lot of time interacting with sugar in my own body, and a lot of time thinking about it now, and have have just been thinking about. Um, the, the need for um, a more sustained movement to examine Black people's relationship to sugar. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a matter of survival at this point. So um, these, these are longstanding concerns for me. Um, but, you know, if Black people don't figure out a way to, and, and really not just Black people, but the people the world over, don't figure out a way to stem the flow of sugar into our bodies, we're going to be in trouble. We are in trouble. So I know one of the interesting things about the social science approach that you take is um, it really brings us to this deeper environmental and ecological and social understanding. And for something like sugar, we tend to think of it in nutrition as something that's just, you know, bad for our bodies. But we don't really think about it in a deeper context, in a bigger context. Can you just elaborate a bit more about the environmental and ecological and social context of sugar that you're really interested in? Sure. Um, you know, one, one, um, a paper that I published with two former students of mine, um, a, a, a 2019, um, examined just this issue. Um, the paper was titled Sugar Ecologies, Their Metabolic and Racial Effects. And in this article with these two students, we had really been thinking about the, that environmental and ecological dimension to social life, right? How the, how the food system as a designed and built engineered social structure could be understood as constituting a kind of environment. And, uh, and this isn't new thinking. You know, people have, of course, been thinking about you know, food ecologies and food environments for, for, for some time. Um, but we were really thinking about, you know, what, what, it, what would it look like if we really tried to trace this one particular commodity um, as, as constitutive of a kind of ecology, right, where you could just kind of zero in on that one particular kind of, um, of object. And in, 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 that, in that analysis, we were really drawing on the kind of science and technology studies approach of, of tracking and tracing the flow of, a, of, a, of an object, of a scientific object through multiple fields and how sugar was both 
um, central to agricultural relations, but also relations in science and in nutrition science and in advances in nutrition science or in epigenetics and so forth. Um, so, you know, if you follow sugar around, you can see how it impacts not just the bodies that it passes through, but how it is um, the, the object of a whole set of social and economic relationships that make it very difficult to, ch to change. I mean, for, you know, just for example, Tessa, you know, in my local Costco, you know, the, the hundred pound bag of U.S. sugar sits there on the shelf for Costco, you know, customers to buy, right? U.S. sugar, right? This is, this is still, it's just, it's literally the same colonial commodity it was, you know, um, the same structure right there on the shelf. Um, and so, you know, I just became very much interested in, you know, how that ecology is built through social structures, through law, through policy, um, and how science and technology serve to buttress that particular uh, ecosystem and, and produce the inequalities that it does. Um, right, the inequalities aren't a mystery, Like you can literally see them as the planned outcome of a designed social order. And that's what I've been, you know, fixated on with relationship to sugar for for, for some time now. Wait, can you just elaborate a bit more on what you mean by a planned outcome? Well, yeah. I mean, so just I'll take you back to the 1950s, right? Um, and you, know, you and I were talking about this, but you know, when a group of Harvard researchers were um, paid by the sugar industry to tell the lie to the American public that it was fat and not sugar, that was the leading cause of heart disease, right? Um, the, you know, the American public has been so propagandized with respect to sugar that it, right, they don't even really see it as something that's harmful uh, necessarily, right? And that was a very intentional thing. Those lies were on, on purpose, uh, meant to deceive, meant to allow that harm to continue unabated. They knew full well the effects it would create with the mass distribution of sugar throughout the, the American food system and the global food system for sure. That it's, it's, this has been, has been known for a hundred years, foundational to the science of metabolism is what sugar does to the body. And, and so, um, you know, that's what I mean. They knew the, the, the producers uh, and, and, the, and the, the, um, the folks who benefit from the circulation of, of sugar around the world knew full, knew full well what effects it would create. And from their production plans to their marketing campaigns, uh, to the distribution networks ensure that, you know, sugar gets where it gets to where it needs to go. Um, you know, one example of this would be in, in, in marketing to youth and black and brown youth are much more likely to be exposed to advertising for sweet and sugary foods and drinks than our white children, right? Like, well, how could that be? Right, uh, but when you, but and it's and again, it's part of a of a kind of a, a media and a social and a, an environmental ecosystem that is designed to produce uh, health problems. Right, right. We still have the tide of sugar coming, so um, I think that the, I think that's I want to know how we challenge that. I mean, so the part of this has taken me back to. Um, the British anti-saccharite movement, you know, of the 1750s, right? Um, 
you know, when William Fox and, and these folks in Britain were, were calling for the, you know, abolition of slavery and were, were, were calling on people to not consume commodities that were produced by slaves, principally sugar and rum. And, you know, that, that's kind of what I want to I want to think about publicly now, right? Is why why can't we do that now? Like, why don't we see that relationship now? So, calling attention to the legacy of slavery and racism in sugar instead of just talking about it being bad for our bodies, right? Like, if it, you know, clearly, clear everybody knows that it's bad. Too much sugar is clearly not a good thing, right? But you know, that's not that's no longer the issue, right? It's that. You know, in our contemporary world, sugar is still produced under slave labor today. That's not that's not just a, a product of yesteryear. Can you just elaborate on that on slavery today? Yeah, throughout the world, you know, in Brazil, in, throughout South America, in throughout Colonia, you know, throughout Africa, wherever India, right? If you look at the at the leading producers of sugar around the world, national producers of sugar around the world. You know, they are still, these are the former colonies still producing those export crops under trade agreements set forth after the end of the war, right? These agricultural export-based economies, and they're forced to produce the sugar to get out of debt to the, to the West. And so they sell it back to the West. The United States doesn't produce enough sugar, right? We don't, we don't produce enough of the sugar that we consume, so we have to import some of it. So we, we, we have all sorts of trade policies and, and price support set up to ensure that sugar is produced around the world. And you know, there, as we, I report in this article and, and has been cited elsewhere, we're really drawing on the reporting of others that um, you know, um, these sugar plantations still rely on highly coerced labor and in some cases actual in slave, slave labor, children. Um, I mean, how else do you call, what else do you call it? Yeah, this is very enlightening because it's something that I don't actually know a lot about. And I'm sure a lot of people don't really think about our global commodity system and how slavery is very much alive and well. It, 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 it still is. And the, it, it is how you get the volume of sugar we've got, right? I mean, the, if um, it's been re- one of the things I would encourage listeners to, to do is, you know, search online, look at just a, a, a chart mapping the increases of sugar production over the last hundred years. This is something I, I, a slide I show in my research all the time, you know, looking at, it's just literally been this linear uptick from 8 million metric tons globally in the late 1890s, 8 million metric tons to 200 million metric tons per year. And so over that period of time, as, as production has increased, so too has consumption. Waste has increased as well, right? We're not eating all of it. But, um, and a lot of it is, of course, fed to other animals, not just us. Um, so, um, but it's, uh, from eight to 200 million metric tons, it's, it's, a, it's a, re- a remarkable biological and environmental and social transformation. Yeah, wow. I mean, this just gives us such a great background on the politics of sugar. Um, and I want to go back to your your point about the possibility of, I think, a political boycott as opposed to a nutritional one. 
Yes, it, you know, it hit me this summer. Well, I've I've been thinking about this for a while, and in my in my book, Blood Sugar, I called you know was wrote about what I called like a metabolic insurrection. Like we really needed to investigate this further and think about this. And but I I, I literally wrote about this in such a way that I didn't want to be like become like a newly deputized deputized version of the food police, right? Policing the you know people's choices and judging them and you know judging myself, my family. You know, I have you know two children and and. And and my wife at home, it's like everyone got so tired of hearing me like talk about sugar and like you know try to you know um, make like a birthday cake with half the amount of sugar or like some natural and it's just you know so um, it's it's very difficult for sure and so um, I think that the the kind of pressure on the individual consumer, the pressure pressure on the individual citizen to make the right choices all the time to follow the right nutritional program, to stick to it, to be disciplined. That, that, I'm, I'm tired of people whole, having to shoulder that burden. And now we need to shift the burden back on the people who are producing and benefiting from these commodities being circulated in mass, right? It doesn't have to be this way. Y'all could make less money, right? And so, you know, there's just simply no need for it. We could produce half the amount of sugar we, we, we are currently producing and would be better off for it. Right, so this is, is we've really been focusing too much on the demand, and we need to be focusing far more on supply. You know, um, and so that's what I mean by by the political, uh, you know, the, this kind of political anti-saccharide movement. Right, um, when 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 William Fox and and these British anti-saccharides were were opposing the consumption of slavery in Britain, you know, that wasn't about whether it was you know healthy for you or not. It was because they opposed it because it was linked to the system of slavery, and in that, for that reason, it should be abandoned. And that remains the same. And it, you know, to, for us today, it, it, it so it was so ironic this summer when Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben finally bit the bullet. Right, George Floyd had been murdered, and in the wake of his murder and all the other upheaval of this summer, the. You know, these transnational food companies said, finally, we're going to gonna retire Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima. And, and again, it's so funny to me because, of course, when consumed, that sh syrup and rice are just 100% carbohydrate, right? It's sugar, basically. Um, and these cultural figures got the boot, but the sugar remains the same. It's, the sugar continues to flow. So it's not connecting the racism to the actual sugar itself. Exactly. So somehow we decoupled the representation from the material reality, right, of racism in this context. And I think we need to kind of bring that back into focus. And what's been so remarkable, remarkable about that is that it's, this has been happening in the context of a much more public recognition of the inequalities in our food system. Like we see it as a system. And so therefore, I feel like it almost gets hard to kind of break it down to individual corporate actors or individual commodities. And we somehow see it as a big kind of glut. Um, and, and, but I think that um, you know, a, a boycott of sugar might be an interesting thing to pursue. Yeah, I really like how you're taking this political perspective on sugar instead of um, just the individual perspective. It really opens up a new way of thinking about this. Um, it, just to kind of move towards wrapping up, is there anything else that you want to circle back around to that we didn't fully cover? Well, I, I guess the one thing I would circle back to is 
the the personal challenges of negotiating a relationship to sugar, right? Um, again, as a as a type one diabetic person today, I wear an insulin pump. I have I use the most advanced technology to monitor my blood sugar every five seconds. It's literally downloaded to my smartphone. Um, and you know, I have twenty years of of experience as a researcher, you know, thirty years of experience as a diabetic person, and I still to this day, you know, have you know trouble um, um, moderating my consumption in a way that's that's always healthful, right? And so, you know, I, I empathize for my kinfolk out here who is struggling with a relationship to sugar, um, and I think we have to take some of the pressure off of of the moral pressure off of people, right? constantly have to to battle this 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 war every day and um i I think that that is that is there's a psychological weight to that and there's a kind of a spiritual weight to that it's for example it's not unusual that not um forgive me let me repeat that um you know a third of diabetic people suffer also from depression right and so i you know i wonder about that relationship and you know i think people need to be freed from these 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 metabolic dominations that are make it very difficult to choose the right path. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I, I know that people really struggle with this weight of personal responsibility in their lives. Uh, and you know, there's there's that difficulty of even seeing the big picture, but then this real everyday difficulty of just not bearing the burden and putting that weight back onto the bigger picture. Right. It's a, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's in some ways the challenge of a, of a sociological point of view as to connect those two things, to connect in what C. Wright Mills called the personal trouble and the public issue, right? That people needed to understand the troubles they were facing in their everyday lives as connected to the struggles of other people and that they were, they were shared and they weren't isolated in their, in their efforts to understand their lot in life or how the die had been cast against them. And so, um, you know, I've been driven by that, that kind of sociological imagination for a long time. And I think that that's important for people to understand. And I think that the, the pandemic actually has put this into crystal clear relief for us. The, the absolute centrality of analyzing our social lives and the work we do together um, and how our togetherness, in fact, constitutes the social that we live in. And so, um, you know, that connection between what I do every day and what we are as a, as, a, as a human family is all the more clear now. Yeah, and perhaps how much the system feels out of our control. That's right. Both how much it is out of our control on the one hand and also, and also how through collective effort and through the, I, what I still do believe in is people's power right, to come together in mass to demand change. It's, it, is, it, is the, it is the only thing that cannot be denied and it can be denied, right? It cannot be dismissed. And so when you go when you go after, and this is the a point I make in, in, in some recent writing about this, when you go after the empire's money, then you're on something. You know, they, they image they don't care about. You can protest the image all day long. But when you go after the money, they then they start to pay attention. So um, you know, that mattered. That's that's in part how the British anti-saccharites were able to abolish slavery in Britain. 
And I think we have a similar call to arms today. Well, thank you, Tony. I think like you've just given us such an enlightening podcast about sugar and it really adds to our series. So thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm so grateful for you having me on the podcast today. And I just want to encourage our listeners to tune into our other podcasts on sugar and on inequality and food. Uh, We will put the links in the bio and thanks so much for joining us. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliazak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.